they lived happily ever after, right? That's typically what happens at the end of every fairy tale. What happens in real life? Sometimes, maybe. What happens in real life is a word called entropy. Does anyone recognize that word? It's from chemistry. And you guys, right there, chemistry is awesome. Okay. <laughs> Trust me, okay? Entropy is, uh, well, it's found in the second law of thermodynamics, but you probably don't really care. It, it's the idea that everything sort of tends to disorder. Everything has a tendency to, to, to fall apart. And it's uh, a term that we use not just in chemistry but, or physics, but even in communications theory. And I think even in, um, in uh, our relationships. Let me give you an example of entropy. If you've got a closed system, if you have an ice cube, okay, and it's, it's a crystal structure, you've got minimum entropy and you've got maximum order. Maximum, like an ice cube is very orderly, right? Well, what happens over time as that ice cube melts? Someone cries out from the kitchen, who made this mess? And you've got a puddle of water with no structure at all. Maximum entropy, minimum order, okay? So the second law of thermodynamics basically says in life, in a closed system, everything tends towards maximum entropy, and everything tends to, to fall apart. Give me another example. Um, if you have any high school students in your house, you go and look at their bedroom. <laughs> now, not you guys, because you're all above average, but other people's kids. Their bedrooms tend towards maximum entropy. Or, if you look at my office, I have to work hard at preventing entropy from taking over my office. But I think, with this tendency towards disorder, I think that can be true in our spiritual lives too. And I believe that spiritual entropy will take us away from God unless He helps us stay on track. The Bible is definitely not a fairy tale. It's God's Word. It's His revelation of Himself to us. It's full of stories of messy people in messy situations and just messy lives. And that's what we find in the final chapter of Nehemiah. We're finishing the book of Nehemiah. I think this is the seventh time we talked about it. Um, so you may or may not be sad we're done. But let me just review the story briefly. Um, What's happened is that the people of Israel were, were conquered by a foreign empire, by the Babylonian Empire, taken away into captivity. And there was kind of like an uh, ethnic cleansing, so to speak, in, in their country. And they were all hauled away off to Babylon. They only left them, the poorest of the poor, behind. Totally trashed the city, totally destroyed it, destroyed this awesome, beautiful temple. It was just a wreck, a no man's land. Years and years and years go by. And eventually, the king relents and lets some people go back and settle. And they rebuild the temple, and uh, it's kind of a start. But no city back in those days is really worth its salt unless it's got a wall, a protective wall around it. Nehemiah has got a really important job in the civil service of the empire. And he risks his life to go and ask the king, can I go back there? And by the way, 
I'm going to need about a gazillion dollars in the budget to do it. Can I do it? And the king says, yes. Much to Nehemiah's relief, because he had literally risked his life to, ask, to make this request. So Nehemiah goes back, doesn't say anything to anybody about what he's doing, stays quiet for three days, walks out at night to do a quick survey of the mess, and the next day he rallies the troops, and he says, the famous words, you see the mess we are in. He doesn't say, you are a bunch of losers, I can't believe you're living in all these piles of rubble. He says, do you see the mess we're in? God's going to help us put things back together. So he rallies the troops, and over incredible opposition, the people get together and they build. And you remember that story about all the people building sections of the wall? Everybody built the wall, mostly in their own neighborhood, like Winnipeggers build dikes in their own neighborhood in flood season, because people are motivated to look after their own backyards, right? Smart planning on the Alliance part. And as he's building, though, he runs into all kinds of opposition. He's got some nasty neighbors, a guy named Tobiah, who's a real rascal. Sandalot, he's another rascal. Geshem. Oh, all these guys are conspiring against him and trying to sap their energy and make threats. And Nehemiah kept saying, don't have time for this. I'm doing a great work and I can't come down and deal with you guys. God's going to take care of you. Stay out of my face. And they stay on track. They get the wall half built. They run into some opposition, some internal trouble. God helps Nehemiah resolve that. And then they get things built. And they hang the gates and everything's all great. And they're even have a revival. People not just build this wall around the city, get their city back and their lives back and some social stability. Spiritually, they call out to God. They start reading God's word and say, oh man, what were we thinking? We couldn't believe that we had missed all these commandments in God's word. And it strikes them right to the heart and they're weeping and crying and saying, God, I'm sorry we blew it. We made such a mess and they, what the Bible calls, we repent. They did a total 180, and they came before God with a solemn agreement saying, all right, God, we're going we're gonna to live life your way because that's the way you designed it, and we're going to live life your way, and we're going to make things work, and we're going to make all these commitments to you, and things are going to be great. So, that was the end of chapter 12. And you would think, and they all live happily ever after. But this is the Bible, and this is real life. So, Nehemiah went back to Babylon for a while, went back to his old position in the king's court because he had made a promise that he would. And, um, you know, when he left, everything was in great shape. They were living life on the mountaintop. But unfortunately, life is not lived on the mountaintop, is it? It's more like uh, slugging through the swamp some days or teetering on the edge of a cliff or wandering through the fog. You guys are going to Banff in a little while, right? A few weeks? Those big things on the horizon that block the view, those are mountains, okay? And I hope you get a chance to see <laughs> And I hope you get a chance to see some. You know, we'll, I'll, I'll, I'll talk to your boss. And I hope you can go at least go up uh, the cable car up Sulphur Mountain or hike it. You're young and spry. Let Mr. Lapitha take the cable car up. He's a little older. You guys, it'll take you about an hour to get up, okay? And you'll love the hike. But when you get to the top, it's amazing how much you can see. And it's a great experience. But odds are you're not going to stay there. You're going to come back. So life isn't lived on the mountaintops as much as we would like it to be. It just, life just doesn't happen that way. So here's what happened. Nehemiah 
leaves the, the nation of Israel on a mountaintop, goes back to Babylon, comes back, finds that things have fallen apart. And this is part of chapter 13 I'm going to read to you. I also learned that the portions inside of the Levites, they were the temple servants, the, the, the clergy of the day, they had not been given to them, that all the Levites and the musicians responsible for the service and the worship of God had gone back to their own fields. Why? Because they were laid off. There was no money for worshiping God. No, no provision made. And these people had to feed their families, so they went back to their fields. So I rebuked the officials, the guys in charge, and says, why is the house of God neglected? Now the big deal here that Nehemiah was so frustrated is that God had done everything for these people. He had miraculously provided their city to be rebuilt and, and their society to be put back together. And people had made these great, wonderful promises. And just a few years later, everything had fallen apart. So that's why Nehemiah is so frustrated when he says, that's what it means, why is the house of God neglected? It's not just that someone had forgotten to change the church sign or shovel the sidewalk. Not that they needed a shovel or sidewalk. But why is the worship of God ignored? Why do you live life as if God doesn't exist? What are you doing? So he called them together and stationed them at their post. So he had to rally their troops and get them back together again. Um, and another thing he finds is that after the, he goes back and, and the, the king gives him permission to go back, Here's what I learned about the evil thing Eliashib had done. Here's Eliashib. He's the head priest. Okay? He should know better. He is the guy in charge of worship. So he should have something going on between his ears and something in his heart. He should be a man of knowledge and integrity. And apparently he was neither in this story. Because here's what had happened. Eliashib had provided Tobiah. You remember that old snake Tobiah? He was a guy who was always sneaking around trying to make trouble. And he was ripping off his fellow Jews. He was a nasty piece of work. Elisha had allowed this guy to buy a, a room in the temple itself. It'd be like if we had been allowing gangsters, uh, gang members, to live here in Elam and just take, take over the place. Go figure. You know, if anybody did that, they'd be calling me on the phone or screaming at the elders saying, what the dickens is going on here? That's what Nehemiah found. I was greatly displeased. I think that's an understatement. <laughs> and I could just see this, this, this word through. He literally threw all of Tobias' household goods out of the room. I could just see all this stuff flying out the door. I gave orders to purify the rooms. Interesting, right? A thorough cleansing from the stain of this person. And then I put back into them the equipment of the house of God with the grain offerings and the incense. Now, this is more than just an eviction notice to an unsavory character, but what Nehemiah is trying to make clear to the spiritual leaders of the time, you guys have gone way off track. Way off track. And what are you doing? Things are falling apart. Spiritual entropy is kind of taking over. So Nehemiah, much to his dismay, he had spent his life getting things in order. He left. It's kind of like you, I don't know if you've ever had the experience of you, people house-sitting for you, and you come back and the place is like, ugh, you know? Well, this is a complete trashing of God's city. And that's why Nehemiah was so upset. So just a reminder, life is not lived at the mountaintop. As much, I think, once you get to the top of one of those mountains, you might like to stay there, but life's not like that, right? 
you've got to live life in the real world. So life is not lived at the mountaintop as much as we would like to experience it. We have spiritual, great spiritual experiences and they're gifts from God to remind us that He exists and He's for us and that He's on our side. But we can't just coast on past spiritual experiences. I, I knew an older fellow once in a church I was once pastoring. He was about 80 at the time. He was very fond of telling me something, repeating a significant spiritual experience that happened to him oh, it was 20, 30, 40 years previous. And it was great. It was good to hear about that story. But I kept wondering, well, what happened this week? You know? Has anything happened, like, recently? Are you just sort of coasting on resting on past experiences? I mean, that's great, but... What's God been up to this week in your life, right? Because it's a daily thing. It's a walk with God. So life is not lived in the mountaintop. As much as we would like to think so, it uh, just doesn't happen. And in a closed system, like that ice cube I was talking about, or maybe your bedroom or my office, uh, things tend to disorder unless I put some energy into the system and some intentionality and keep things on track and bring them back to where they should be. And that's what was happening in Jerusalem. Things were falling apart because people weren't being intentional about how they were following God. So the second point is it takes focus to stay on track, right? It takes intentionality. Relationships can drift. I had a, do you know what a DTR is? Define the relationship talk. I've never really had one of those with one of my buddies. This is kind of awkward because we felt, kind of felt like I was in middle school, but I had to call up one of my buddies this last week for coffee and have a DTR talk with him because we just hadn't connected over the last few months and we were always getting together to hang out and pray together and do life and pray for each other, pray for our wives, pray for our kids, and we just busy and drifted apart. And you know sometimes relationships are like that. You drift apart and then you start quietly blaming the other person for not contacting you. And if you're not careful then the ball, the walls get built up and I thought, this is really dumb. It's dumb that I haven't called him. It's dumb that he hasn't called me. And it's even worse is that the situation's going on and on. So we called. And we got together. And now we're going to get together again this week. I'm going to call him because I need his friendship to make it through life, and we need each other. So there is, that's just a, a practical example of how we can drift if we're not careful. And it takes focus to stay on track. All of a sudden, if you're not careful, someone flicks the switch, or you flick the switch, and you're going off in a direction that you had never intended in the first place. And you find yourself in another place, another destination, thinking, how the dickens did I get here? Well, if you look back and you look at a series of choices you made, even just small, minute changes in your course can take you off course. So it does take focus to stay on track, listening to God and walking with Him. And it takes intentionality. And that's what happened to our story. The good thing even with our tendency to, to get off track and to get distracted, the good thing about all this is that God offers us restoration to get back on track. There's a song we're going to sing, we're going to close with. Um, what's it called? Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing, right? 
And there's a line, and it's a, it's a really old classic hymn that I like. The, my favorite words in uh, the song uh, go like this. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the one I love. Which means I've got a tendency. A self-centered, self-oriented, self-self-self tendency to wander away from God. I start up with good intentions. And just like um, that railroad track, I just sort of get off track somehow. Bad choices, circumstances, people, and of course, whatever. And I get off track. And I need to get back on track with God. Same is true as the, as the, as the church in general. When you think of us as... Um, Someone compared the, the church to a ship. And the ships are meant to be in the sea, right? They don't do anything, any good really docked up in the harbor. So as God's people, we're called to be in the world, in society, being salt and light, representing Jesus to people and, and rescuing people and helping them find God, right? So the ship is meant to be in the sea. But there's a problem if the sea starts to get in the ship then you've got a problem, right? Then you've got a problem. So if the world starts influencing so much that we lose sight of who we are and we get on track, then we've got a problem. My brother-in-law is a sailor. He's a captain of Great Lakes Freighter. And he knows something about sailing in stormy seas. And you know when you start taking on water, in the bottom, very bottom of the boat, or the ship, there's something called the bilge. And it's not very nice, and it's awfully smelling. All the wastewater and water that comes over the ship funnels down there. And if you start taking on water, then you've got to start the bilge pump and pump out all this smelly, junky water so you don't take on water and ultimately sink. Because my brother-in-law, Sean, is called to be the captain of a Great Lakes freighter, not submarine, right? So in order to stay above water, you've got to keep pumping out all this bilge water, all this junky water, so you stay afloat. When we're following Jesus, we need to keep short accounts with him and ask him to help us pump out all the bilge water, all the junk that just sort of accumulates. And it might be things done to us. It might be things we've done to other people. In one sense, it really doesn't matter. It's just the fact that we've got this bilge water in there that needs to be pumped out. And as we do that, God offers us restoration to get us back on track. And that's really sweet. And that's what happened in Nehemiah. In the last chapter, people said, Oh, Nehemiah, you're right. What were we thinking? We got off track. And they got back on track again. And one of the last lines in, uh, in uh, the book, actually, Nehemiah says, okay, Lord, remember what I did. I mean, I, it's interesting. If you could track his prayers through the book, it's really interesting. But he says, all right, Lord, gave it all I got. I did my best. I did my thing. Just there it is. You know, take it for what it is. Have mercy on me. And remember what I did. I'm trying here. Some folks are getting on track, but I'm trying to follow you. And there are going to be some days when all we can do is say, Lord, help me to pump up the bilge water. I'm trying to stay on track. Remember what I'm trying to do here. And have mercy on me. So God offers us restoration to get back on track. 
So I'm wondering where we're at with God today. Are things going swimmingly? Great. I don't know if you're on a mountaintop or if you just caught one, that's great. Or maybe you feel like you're lost in a fog or bogged down in a swamp or walking on the edge of a cliff, just teetering. I don't know. I don't know. But God wants us to walk with him. He offers to do that if we pay attention. If we're smart enough and humble enough to say, Lord, help me. And maybe you don't have any faith. That's okay. Join the club. You can uh, be first in line right after me. All right? I tell him one of my favorite prayers in the Bible is, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. All right? Maybe you don't have much hope. That's all right. It's okay. God will listen to you. You don't have to get to some level so God will accept you. If we're humble enough and self-aware enough to say, Jesus, I really messed up. I really need you. Then, then, that's what he's waiting for. He's like, ah, I was just waiting for you to sign off. Give me the blank check of your life and I will change you from the inside out and I will keep changing you. And even if we mess up and we get off track and spiritual entropy draws us off track, he says, come on back on track with me. Come on back on track. So, I don't know where you're at with God today, but I just want to give you that invitation to remind him. I want to remind you that spiritual entropy will take us away from God unless he helps us stay on track. And he certainly will. Now, if you've got any questions about this, I encourage you to call me or email me or contact a friend. Uh, but go chasing after God. Okay, Go pursue him if you feel like you're getting off track. Have a, a DTR talk with him. To find a relationship talk with God. So, God, where are we at? Where are we at? It's not a bad idea to do that on a regular, maybe daily basis. Have a DTR with him. Alright? Let me encourage you to do that. Let's pray. We'll continue with the service. Father, we pray that you will have mercy on us. We know that spiritual entropy happens and we can get off track with you. We know that you've created us for a friendship with you. And many of us live our life as though you don't exist, which is really foolish. So I pray that you would reveal yourself to everyone here who's really looking for spiritual reality. Will you show up in their lives? Will you reveal yourselves yourself powerfully so we know that you are there and that you care. And show us how to build a friendship with you. Many of us are low on hope. Many of us are low on faith. I pray you have mercy on us and help us to still follow you anyway. And I pray that you would bless us so we could be a blessing to the world. That's what you called us to be as a church. Show your mercy to heal. Help us to be people of the Bible and help us to live out the Bible Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. We pray these things confidently in the name of Jesus.